The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Stephen Reed of Steptoe & Johnson on the recent U.S. Circuit Court for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decision in Flint Hills Resources Alaska LLC versus the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Stephen Reed is a partner at the Washington, D.C. office of Steptoe & Johnson, where his primary focus lies in the area of federal energy regulation, particularly for oil and gas pipelines. For more than 24 years, Mr. Reed's represented an array of major U.S. oil pipeline companies in proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, state regulatory agencies, and the U.S. Courts of Appeals. These proceedings have involved such diverse matters as the tariff rates for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System and other Alaska pipelines. Many of the leading cases in the development of the Commission's governing oil pipeline cost-of-service approach and a number of cases involving issues of pipeline market power. Mr. Reed has participated in FERC proceedings involving natural gas producers and pipelines since the early 1980s. Mr. Reed, it's great to have you with us on this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You were recently involved in a case called Flint Hills Resources Alaska versus Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And I guess before we, we, we go any further in talking about the outcome of this case, if you would, tell us who the parties were, what the facts were, and, and give us some of the background of this case. Sure. Well, the main protagonists in this case, I would say, were the state of Alaska and the owners of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System, which most people are familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, the owners being BP, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Coke Industries, in different percentages. There were a number of other parties involved as well, uh, Anadarko Petroleum, which is an independent oil producer on the north slope of Alaska, uh, and Flint Hills Resources, the name party, which owns a refinery near Fairbanks and is uh, also an affiliate of Coke Industries. Flint Hills was generally aligned with the owners of TAPS, so the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, and, and Anadarko was generally aligned with the state of Alaska on most of the issues. Just a little background as to how the case arose. First of all, as, as most people are aware, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline transports crude oil from the producing fields on the north slope of Alaska down the entire length of the state to uh, the Port of Valdez on the south coast. And about 90% of the oil that flows through goes into the interstate market, making it subject to the jurisdiction of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which regulates the interstate tariff rates that are charged to shippers on TAPS. And from 1985 until 2004, the tariff rates were governed by a settlement between the state of Alaska and the owners of TAPS. It was generally called the TAPS Settlement Agreement, or TSA. And that settlement was supposed to run through 2011 originally, but in late 2004, the TAPS carriers filed rates for the year 2005 that were uh, determined under the TAP settlement agreement, and those rates were challenged at the FERC by the state of Alaska and by Anadarko on, on slightly different grounds. Uh, Anadarko was not a party to this 1985 settlement agreement, and so they came in and argued that they weren't bound by that settlement and were free to challenge the rates just as being too high. 
the state, which was still a party to the settlement and was bound by it at that time, did not directly challenge the rates as being too high, but instead argued that the rates for interstate movements were discriminatory because they were higher than rates that had been set previously by the Regulatory Commission of Alaska for in-state movements of oil through taps. So we had Anadarko pursuing a sort of just and reasonable rate theory and the state pursuing a discrimination theory, both designed to lower the rates that had been set under this settlement. In its decision, the uh, uh, FERC generally held in favor of Anadarko and set rates for 2005 and 2006 that were lower than the settlement rates for those years. Those rates that were determined by the FERC would also have been lower than the pre-existing rates that had been in effect prior to this case arising, the 2004 rates. And the commission said that under their traditional application of what's called the refund floor principle, they would order refunds only down to the level of the pre-existing rate, in this case the 2004 rate level, and that they would not refund all the way down to the lower rates, which would have been imposed otherwise. And the FERC also rejected the state's discrimination claim for similar reasons that it would not have, in the FERC's opinion, led to any lower rate than the 2004 rate uh, to which they were refunding anyway. There were a host of issues that arose out of this case, some of which really arose after that initial opinion by the FERC. On rehearing, the commission established a requirement that uh, well, in their original decision, they had set a requirement that the five owners of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline needed to set a uniform rate, that is a common rate for all five. And on rehearing, the commission reaffirmed that ruling and added a, an additional requirement that the five owners pool their costs in order to uh, avoid what the FERC viewed as a mismatch between the way FERC, uh, costs were allocated based on ownership under various agreements, and the usage of TAPS by the respective owners, uh, which was not always in alignment with their ownership. So by the time the case got to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, there were you know, a whole host of issues, not just the original issue about whether the rates for 2005 and 2006 were just and reasonable, but a lot of kind of ancillary issues arose as well. And that's sort of the background of the case. So a number of issues uh, raised and addressed, but uh, what, what were the main issues addressed by the court? Well, the main issues, I think, were, first of all, whether the FERC could rely on the TAPS owners' past rate filings under the TAPS settlement agreement in setting their rates for 2005 and 2006 at the behest of a non-settling shipper. And on that issue, the court clearly affirmed the FERC and did allow them to, to do that basically changed the settlement methodology to a new forward-looking methodology. The second main issue they addressed was whether that change in methodology from the settlement to this more conventional cost of service methodology could be retroactive back to the date of the original protest in the case or whether that had to be prospective only. I'll discuss that more in a moment. And then I mentioned the refund floor issue where the commission had limited its refunds for 2005 and 2006 to the amount of the increase over the 2004 rate. Uh, the third major issue they dealt with was whether the state had a basis to pierce that refund floor based on its claim of discrimination. 
There were also a number of issues the court declined to rule on, on the, primarily the grounds that the, the appeals were premature. And the main issues they didn't rule on were the validity of the uniform rate ruling I mentioned, the validity of the pooling requirement related to that, and also a, a, another subsidiary issue of whether funds the TAPS owners had collected in their prior rates for the eventual dismantlement of the pipeline would be subject to refund if those funds weren't spent uh, at the time when the dismantlement occurs. And in the case of the first two of those issues, the uniform rate and pooling, the court found those not to be ripe because in the meantime, from the time the appeal was filed until the time when the appeal was decided, the FERC had set various issues relating to the implementation of those requirements for hearing in a separate docket. And the court basically said, well, we want to hear how that docket comes out before we have to address the issues that have been raised in this appeal. Uh, so basically deferred review until the commission completes that new docket. And in the case of the dismantlement funds, the court held that the refunds might never be required. It all depends on whether there is any excess at the end of the pipeline's life of the funds collected over the amount expended for dismantlement. The court said we will wait to address that issue until we actually know whether a refund has been ordered or not. So that's an issue that may not come back before the court for many, many years. I was going to ask how likely it might be that any of, uh, any of those issues uh, might come back to be litigated sometime in the near future. Well, on the first two, the uniform rate and pooling, that case is proceeding along at the FERC. There has been um, an initial decision by an administrative law judge. The case is presumably uh, about to be briefed to the full commission, and assuming that the commission eventually issues an order, that, that those issues could come back to the court uh, in the foreseeable future. With respect to the dismantlement issue, it's probably a long way away. Uh, I don't think anybody expects the dismantlement of TAPS to occur uh, you know, in the next few years, so it would be quite some time, I suspect, before the court will see that issue again, if ever. Well, of the issues that the court did rule on, mm -hmm. are there any that are likely to be of general interest to FERC practitioners? Yeah, I think the two that strike me, uh, you know, the, the first issue about the, the change from the settlement to a new methodology, uh, you know, was obviously of intense interest to the parties to this case, but I think was very specific to the circumstances of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline and its history. But the other two rulings, uh, I think, are perhaps of more general interest, the first being the uh, uh, refund floor argument made by the state of Alaska, and the other one being the the prospectivity argument made by the TAPS owners. The refund floor issue arises because under the Interstate Commerce Act, which governs oil pipelines, although it's a similar structure to the Natural Gas Act that governs gas pipelines, if a rate increase is challenged by a protest, that only puts in issue the amount of the increased rate above the prior lawful rate, the last unchallenged rate that was on file with the FERC. FERC has applied this principle for a number of years in both the gas and oil pipeline industries. And so in, in keeping with that principle, as I said earlier, that FERC limited the refunds here to the difference between the pre-existing rate and the new increased rates. The state argued on appeal that the FERC should have awarded it further relief down to the level essentially of the lower intrastate rates that had been set by the Regulatory Commission of Alaska on the grounds that this discrimination theory they were advancing was an exception or should be an exception to the refund floor principle. And the court rejected that claim 
basically on this on the premise that the or the conclusion that the state had failed to prove its entitlement to any relief beyond what the FERC had awarded. Uh, and the, the court's premise was that the party asserting a discrimination claim has to show not just that there was a lower rate out there, but that there was some competitive injury to that party from the disparity between the high rate and the low rate. And in the court's view, the state had not satisfied that burden to show a competitive injury. Therefore, even if they had a valid discrimination claim, and that was a point the court did not rule on, the court found that they had not made a valid claim for any relief that would allow them to go beyond the, the refund floor. So the refund floor was upheld in that decision, and in fact, the state sought rehearing on that point, and rehearing was denied. And that may be of some interest to practitioners, both in the gas and the oil side, in terms of uh, structuring cases, you know, when do you file a protest versus when do you file a complaint, depends on what kind of relief you're looking for, but clearly in a protest case, it appears the court has, has reaffirmed the conclusion that what's at stake in that case is the, is the increased rate, not the pre-existing rate. Any others? Well, I think the retroactivity issue as well. The, uh, the TAPS owners had argued that when the commission is changing from a, an existing methodology, in this case the settlement methodology, to a new methodology that they were going to impose that differed from the prior methodology, that they could only do that prospectively. That is, only from the date of their order, mm -hmm. not going back to the date of the original protest. And the carriers relied on a prior D.C. Circuit decision called C. Robin, which had limited, to some extent, the Commission's ability to impose a change of methodologies retroactively. The court found that it was perfectly appropriate for the TAPS owners to rely on C. Robin, even though that was a gas case and they were an oil pipeline. So the principles are the same. The problem the court found with that argument was that C. Robin, they said C. Robin didn't apply here because all the FERC had done in this case was to disallow the amount of the rate increase, basically the same argument that was made in response to the state on uh, the refund floor was also turned around and used against the TAPS owners on their retroactivity argument, basically saying if the, or implying if the commission had tried to go back and change your pre-existing rate, the 2004 rate, that might have been a retroactivity issue. But since all the commission was doing was finding the increase not to be just and reasonable, the fact that they based that on a methodology that wasn't the prior methodology was not, was not a retroactivity problem. And the implication is that the commission can use a new or a changed methodology to deny a rate increase, even though they might not be able to do the same thing if they were asked to challenge the pre-existing rate on that basis. And in that sense, those two rulings, I think, are kind of related. They both lead you back to the same premise that in a uh, protest case like this, the commission has a great deal of latitude to disallow the rate increase that's sought, but not as much latitude to go after the underlying rate. Did I uh, hear you correctly that uh, rehearing had uh, has been denied in the case? Yes. There was one rehearing request filed. That was by the state of Alaska, and that has been denied. What do you think the impact is of this decision? What is its significance to the industry? Is, is it going to have much significance? Well, I think it's probably limited in the sense that a, a lot of these issues were, as I said, pretty fact-specific to the specific history of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. But I do think that it suggests 
you know, for practitioners being careful about uh, approaching issues of, you know, what remedy are you seeking and through what procedural means are you seeking it? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the uh, issues here did revolve around what, what remedies the FERC had or had not awarded and to what extent uh, the court was going to uphold those rulings. So I think there's real guidance to be had from this decision on what parties can expect in terms of refund floor, what parties can expect in terms of retroactivity in future cases. Before I let you go, let me ask you, are there any issues out there that you're keeping an eye on that may have uh, an effect or an impact and might be of interest to our listeners? Oh, that's a very broad question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> and feel free to give a very broad answer. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's it's um, uh, it's difficult to know. The Right now, I would say I don't see a lot of real broad issues coming out there. There's a, a lot of the Commission's recent decisions have been refinements, I would say, on prior rulings, you know, sort of fleshing out the details a little more on things they've already ruled on. But uh, and I would I would really expect we'll see more of that, more of the commission tweaking the details as opposed to coming out with with broad new initiatives. But beyond that, it's hard to project. It certainly is. Well, Mr. Reed, I, I do want to thank you though for your time. It's been interesting learning about the Flint Hills Resources Alaska case versus uh, FERC, and I appreciate your analyzing some of the issues and passing along uh, your take on it all. Thank you very much for your time and being part of this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Thank you. Stephen Reed of Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at www.lexisnexis.com community. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2011 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.